Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Spencer. And this week's guest, um, I had a brilliant time interviewing him. Uh, we had a really good conversation, very, very interesting. And it's all about how you can change your physiology to optimize your performance. And my guest is Ryan Munsey. And Ryan's a podcaster. He's got a podcast called The Better Human Podcast, which I really recommend you check out on Apple uh, Podcasts. And he's also a writer, a speaker, and a high-performance consultant. So Ryan's worked with professional and Olympic athletes. He's worked with Navy SEALs, entrepreneurs, uh, helping all of those win medals, further their careers, stay healthy, and build six-figure multiple businesses as well. And his work's been featured in Fortune magazine, in Men's Health, Men's Fitness magazine, and he's spoken all over the world, uh, where his lectures have been described as great and inspiring. So I was really keen to get Ryan on the show, and uh, he just released a new book called Fuck Your Feelings. Um, and it's all about, in my opinion, how you can change your physiology to optimise your performance. So in this show, we talk about how you can do that to improve vagal turn or heart rate variability, as I've more commonly referred to it on this show, uh, with the ultimate aim of improving your emotional resiliency and better controlling those feelings that can drive our behaviours, whether they're positive or negative. So Ryan's belief is that our physiology affects our thoughts, which affect our emotions and therefore our feelings. So by changing our physiology, we can change our feelings. So we talk about all of that on the show. We also talk a little bit about gut health and the effect that has on our thoughts and feelings and um, operating in your discomfort zone as well. So it's really fun to record. I really hope you enjoy this show. Uh, there's links to everything in the show notes and let me know if you've got questions or feedback. Enjoy. Ryan, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. And I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, well, me too. Um, I've got a, a really great 60 minutes coming up, I hope. Um, the obvious place to start is your book. Um, the uh, difficult to forget title of uh, Fuck Your Feelings. But before we talk about the title, which I'm sure you're, you're expecting that question, mm -hmm. what was the motivation for writing the book? Well, I mean, right before we hit record, you and I were, were chatting about being an author and, and writing and, and, and how that act of writing is such a great way to go through the catalog of information that is in our heads and, and sort of distill that down and, and share that information with the world. And, you know, I've been in the business of nutrition, health and fitness, personal training, strength coach, basically transformation for more than a decade. And I've had the amazing opportunity to interview researchers and neuroscientists and you know people who are really pushing the boundaries on, on what we understand in terms of how the body works and and what the science is but i've also had you know, the unique opportunity with and coach and train and learn from uh, olympic athletes and um, you know, special forces operators and professionals across you know sports and business and then to be able to look at the, the theory, if you will, and then also the application from the people who are doing this at a high level in the real world. Mm. Um, there were just, there were, there were too many sort of lessons and, and things that needed to be shared uh, to kind of sit on that. So I think the, um, the reason for doing it was to sort of make sure that I could understand it myself. You know, I, I'm, I'm a very, very curious person. So it was, you know, let me let me look into this a little bit more and then as I do it's um, you know how do we present this in sort of a user's manual for anyone to be able to pick this up and understand what's going on between their ears and uh, as you know and I'm sure you've talked about it on the show before I mean if we can master uh, our minds master ourselves then anything is possible hmm. absolutely yeah did you learn a lot researching the book yourself say that again did, did you learn a lot yourself? Did I learn? Researching the book? Yeah. Um, I think in the early stages I did. Um, you know, the in chapter one, you know, we find out that ninety-five percent of our decisions are made based on how we feel in any given moment. Mm -hmm. And I actually I didn't learn that in researching the book. I learned that researching a talk that I was giving last year at the Biohacker Summit in Sweden. And that was actually something that really led the way to the title, as you mentioned, and um, sort of it was it was sort of the thing that tied everything together with all these thoughts and, and outlines 
that I had in my head for the book. And um, there were a few things that I learned specifically for the book in relation to that fact. And that sort of, again, was like, it was the thread that just tied everything together. Um, and, and I think it was really fascinating to see how so many of these things tie together that, you know, we may have thought were maybe related, but at the same time, unrelated when it comes to feelings and HRV and vagal tone and, uh, you know, gut health, uh, some of the mm. things that I'm sure we'll talk about as we go forward. Yeah, sure. Cool. Okay. So why the, to the title then? You've alluded to it a little bit, but and obviously it's powerful, it's punchy, it's eye-catching. Yeah. And, and that was one of the reasons that it seemed like, you know, a great title is that, you know, it's hard to ignore. You know, I wanted a title that if you're if I'm lucky enough to get this in a bookstore, which hasn't happened yet, but maybe it will, I mean, there's, there's thousands of books and, and I wanted something that would stand out on a bookshelf or on Amazon, uh, something that, you know, as you said, would be hard to ignore, hard to forget. Hmm. And there, there were two other reasons. One is it's, it's always been sort of self-talk. Um, it's just what I say to myself, you know, on a rainy Monday morning, um, if I don't feel like doing what I know I'm supposed to do, then it's like, dude, fuck your feelings, do what you're supposed to do, show up, you know, be that person. Um, and, and again, you know, that 95% of our feelings, 95% of our decisions are made based on how we feel in any given moment. So that's sort of the, the thesis of the book is, is understanding why we feel a certain way and bringing an awareness to what's going on it's this awareness that affords us choice and you know if we can be aware that you know hey uh you know i know it's raining and i'm i'm kind of sluggish today and you know this is what's going on and i don't feel like doing a certain thing but we need to you know screw those feelings and do what we're supposed to do because you know if you look at these high performers uh, the people that i've been able to work with or, or pick you know your favorite person that you aspire to be like whether it's oprah or richard branson or whoever you're obviously uh, you're looking at a person who has obviously done what they were supposed to do regardless of how they felt for a long period of time uh, you know there's a quote that uh, remarkable people do unremarkable things with remarkable consistency. Mm. And in, in order to do that, you've got to ignore your feelings at certain points uh, throughout that journey. So yeah, the title for, for a few different reasons just made sense. And I'll be honest, we actually, we tried very hard to move away from that and pick a different title. Um, but nothing that we came up with worked as well uh, and made as much sense. Everything else was just sort of camp and forced and um, we, we just came back to this title and uh, it, it seems to be resonating with a lot of people so far. Yeah, sure. And I find it's, it's interesting, funny you, you quote that, it's Logan Gelbrick, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I'd actually written down that quote on my page of notes here that I was going to introduce at some point, but you've got it before me. I think it's a brilliant quote and consistency is absolutely key. We'll come back to that. What I liked in the book as well, um, and obviously I'll link to the book and everything we talk about in the show notes is that whilst it is about sort of saying fuck you to your feelings and, and pushing them aside it's also about tuning into your body and your feelings um so it's very much that dichotomy yeah exactly and, and i think a lot of people will hear the title and say oh well this is just a guy writing about being macho and you know you know not listening to your body or your feelings but it, it's actually quite the opposite from that you know i explore feelings from a neurobiological standpoint um, you know i'm a scientist i'm trained like a scientist um, you know, so from that standpoint, you know, there's in, inherent to being a scientist, there's this objectivity where you remove emotion or feelings. So it's how do we take an emotionless look at emotions and feelings, um, which is kind of an ironic thing, but that that is the way the book is written. It is not ignore your feelings. It's not about, you know, not being touchy feely or things like that. It's it's really, I want people to understand that we are all humans. We all have the same biology. So again, if we look at these high performers or Richard Branson or Oprah, whoever you want to, you know, sort of use as the embodiment of who you want to be or what you want your life to look like, they're all, we're all humans. We all have the same biology, the same anatomy, the same physiology. And most people don't understand what's going on inside of our bodies. We're not taught these things uh, unless you've 
you know, happen to have uh, an education that is specific to, you know, those classes. Um, I think it's sort of like finance or, you know, balancing a checkbook. It's one of those things that we should be taught in school. You know, you're a human and, you know, we should be given a user's manual to, you know, who we are and how we work and what's going on. Um, you know, so, so the book will really help people understand, you know, what feelings are, what emotions are. They're not the same thing. They're different. We talk about fear. We talk about anxiety. Those are different things. Fear is the real presence of a threat. Anxiety is just the anticipation of or the worry about the presence of a threat. So if that snake isn't on the path and you're afraid of the snake, that's an anxiety. That's not a real fear. Uh, you know, so we do talk a lot about these things. And, and you, you mentioned um, uh, or what we're talking about feelings. So the neurobiological definition of feelings is that they are a mental experience of a body state or our physiological state. So really just understanding that. And then, like I said earlier, that brings an awareness or allows us to bring a certain awareness to, okay, this is what's going on. Now that I'm aware of that, I can, I can differentiate that and, and me and who I am. So um, the, I think one of the examples that really helps people kind of put this into um, you know, a tangible um, experience is we all know we want to eat healthier or be healthier. Um, especially if somebody's listening to a podcast like this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're walking down the street and you walk past a bakery and your immediate reaction is, oh, wow, those cookies look good or that pizza smells good. I want that. The immediate reaction there comes from the limbic system. And as part of our biology, it is designed to be extremely fast, much faster than our neocortex or our prefrontal cortex, which is the newer, more evolved version of our brain. So we sort of have these different levels of response to the same uh, stimuli. So from a survival standpoint, that limbic system is good. It helped keep us alive for you know thousands of years. It's very fast, like we said, but it's sort of like the hormone and ego-driven teenager. It is incapable of thinking beyond the now. So an example of when it would be good is, again, that snake on the path, right? If we're walking through the woods and I see it, you don't. Before I can actually think, oh, there's a snake, and inform thoughts and communicate that to you, most likely what I will do is stop walking and put my arm out in front of you and then stop you and then we have that verbal communication uh, that is, you know, oh, hey, there's a snake, stop, don't step on it. Uh, but that limbic system, that immediate response reaction has kept us alive. There's a survival component to it, so it's good. But in today's world, if we're walking down, you know, the street, we walk past that bakery and we have that response, oh, that smells good, I like that, I want that. And then we all know the next thought that comes, which is, oh, but I shouldn't because fill in the blank, I'm avoiding gluten or I don't eat this or I'm, keto or paleo or whatever but it's that second that that sh that response that comes later that's slower that's the prefrontal cortex so a lot of people will have that reaction and they're like oh well, what's wrong with me why do i do this and, and they think that they shouldn't feel this way or they shouldn't have that response but that's totally human and you know it's when we can understand that and understand that our biology is doing this we can we can forgive ourselves for having that response because it's normal it's human and then we have the awareness of this, which again, that's what gives us the choice. And we can say, okay, well, that was a normal response. I'm okay with that. There's nothing wrong with me. Do I want to go this way or do I want to go the other way? And then, you know, we talk in the book about, you know, defining our values and then it's, it becomes less about motivation and do I want to stick to my diet or do I want to do, you know, something that I feel like I have to, or do I want to make decisions that that are aligned with my stated goals of becoming, you know, an Olympic athlete or, or, you know, successful in business like Richard Branson or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, I, that was a long answer to your question, but I hope that. <laughs> no, sense. but it was fascinating. And, and understanding the different areas of the brain and what sort of influence they have on our decision-making is obviously vital, but okay. Um, one of the things I wanted to start with is physiology and how we can alter our physiology to help us get towards our goals and influence our feelings. And um, 
Specifically, I want to start with vagal tone or the polyvagal theory. If you can just explain that to us, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so I think the easiest way to understand polyvagal theory is much like the example that we just went through. Um, so polyvagal theory was posited by a guy named Dr. Stephen Porges, who interestingly is also the same person who dis discovered heart rate variability back in the 1960s. Um, if you're not familiar with heart rate variability, it is the difference in time between heartbeats. So it's not, it's not the time between the beats, but it's the different amount of time between each heartbeat. And um, it, it's funny, when he found that, they told him that he was wrong and that he was just a bad scientist, that his data, was, uh, his data collection was, was a, you know, just bad. Um, but it's interesting that now you know, we know that this is a thing and that it's something that we can measure and actually use as um, you know, something that can help us look at health. Well, we've known about the vagus nerve for, for a long time. Um, and what he figured out that no one else had figured out before that was that it was a two-way street, that it was what connected the gut and the brain and brain to the gut, so that there's information traveling in both directions. Most nerves are either afferent or efferent, meaning that they take information in one direction. Um, so this polyvagal theory proposes a hierarchy of how we respond to certain situations. The first two response mechanisms are primitive and rooted in that limbic system or that uh, lizard brain, if you will. And they're very uh, primitive responses. The first one being immobilization, the second one being fight or flight. Um, and this is sort of an oversimplification so, so we can understand it um, and then talk about how we use this information. Um, the third or the newest one comes from the prefrontal cortex and it is basically verbal communication. So again, we, we'll go back to the snake example. Um, you know, some people would just freeze, uh, some people would run, uh, and then other people, um, or, or the, the newer, higher level responses, you know, to communicate. Mm -hmm. Um, or you could look at this as a bar fight, right? So let's say you bump into somebody at the bar. Um, the most primitive way to respond would be to be immobilized. Um, and, um, you know, that's where like the saying scared shitless comes from. Yeah. Um, and uh, you would actually just like curl up in a ball and, and lay on the floor um, or just stand there and do nothing. And then the, the second response would be fight or flight. You could either fight the guy or a girl or run. Uh, and then the, the more higher, uh, the, the newer and, and most highly evolved way to deal with this is to try to talk it out. So that, that kind of sets up polyvagal theory. And as it re respond, or as it kind of relates to uh, HRV, HRV again is heart rate variability. So that is a measure of vagal tone. Uh, those can be used synonymously, but the higher our vagal tone is, the greater our emotional resiliency. Um, so you asked earlier about learning something that was, you know, kind of eye-opening during this. That was definitely one of the things that you know, I learned, and you know that. And we talked about like how all these things tie in. So here's that connection that when vagal tone is high, so heart rate variability is high, we have a greater bandwidth, uh, a greater ability or capacity to deal with life, with stuff. And if you want an example of that in a very tangible, very, very acute setting, think about a day where you fly and you have jet lag, or if you took a red eye uh, and you didn't get any sleep, or if you've got a newborn child and you know what it's like to not get sleep for a few days. Sleep is one of the most powerful things that can affect uh, HRV, heart rate variability. So if you want to increase vagal tone, get higher quality, better sleep, more sleep. If you want to see vagal tone go down, just don't sleep for two days. And, yeah. and if you've ever been sleep deprived, you know how irritable you are. You know how you just don't have the capacity to deal with stuff. You know your decision making is compromised in those states. So that's a really tangible example for a lot of people to be able to understand what that feels like to have low vagal tone or low HRV. And then how that then leads to 
decreased emotional resiliency, decreased decision-making, um, and, and sort of operating from that limbic system as opposed to you know, using your prefrontal cortex, your higher evolved brain yeah. um, to move through life. So hopefully that kind of under, helps people understand kind of what you were going for there with that question. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and regular listeners to the show will, will have heard me talk about heart rate variability quite a bit as well. Um, okay, cool. Um, I wanted to explore a bit more about emotional resiliency. How else, apart from, I mean, is it close? It's obviously closely correlated to vagal tone. How else can somebody build emotional resiliency? Well, and again, this is where sort of that everything is everything statement is in the book. And we talked about this earlier where there, everything just really ties in so nicely that, you know, with HRV, if we've, if we've looked at that from a fitness or a recovery standpoint, which is how most people talk about HRV, you know, we'll see that everything that is quote unquote recovery activity is usually a parasympathetic activity, whether that's yoga or breath work or sauna. Um, And HRV is more or less, it's just a measure of how much time we spend in parasympathetic activity versus sympathetic activity, sympathetic being fight or flight. And that's how most people go through their daily lives where, you know, we wake up and we've got to get the kids ready. We've got to do this. And then we get in rush hour traffic and we commute, we go to work, we deal with, you know, bosses and deadlines and tasks that we have to do. And then we've got to answer emails and, you know, all these notifications on our phone. And then we go home and we've got traffic again. And you can see like, it's exhausting. It's a lot. Yeah. But if we can just slow down, we can slow down and breathe and maybe take five minutes and meditate. Um, All of these tools that I present in the book are recovery methods. Uh, They're also parasympathetic activities. So the answer is to try to spend more time in the parasympathetic state that will elevate HRV or vagal tone, which increases emotional resiliency. Um, And it also just kind of gives us pause. It gives us uh, that time to kind of step back and and evaluate things and be uh, responsive instead of reactive, Mm. um, which is, I think, how people go through life, unfortunately. Yeah. And what does that look like for you? What are some of the recovery-based activities that you'll do pretty much on a daily basis? Well, I'm a huge fan of cold exposure. Uh, I like cold showers. Um, I use red light every morning. And um, with that, uh, that's about a 12-minute thing for me. Um, So while I'm doing that, I do a lot of breath work and meditation instead of just standing there, you know, watching the clock. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to what I call stack or, or you know, be very efficient with my time. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I do gratitude journaling. Uh, I like to either start or finish my day with uh, some things uh, around gratitude. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of scientific uh, research that shows that that um, improves vagal tone and, and just, you know, improves happiness and health overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I do yoga not as often as i would like but uh i'm a big fan of bikram yoga um i'll try to do that once or twice a month and i I think for me it's not necessarily feeling like i have to do the same things every day as much as it is knowing that i have this toolbox with options and on certain days maybe some days i need music other days i need to walk other days i need to Uh, go float or talk to somebody. Um, But all of these things are um, activities that we can use. And and that's one of the reasons that I like to call them tools um, is because I don't want people to feel like they have to have this routine. And it's the routine. If we ever get into a situation where we feel like it's the routine that makes us who or how we want to be, we're we're giving that power away. Then it's no longer us. It's the routine. So um, you know, I think it's just being aware that these tools can be brought out at any time to help us get where we want to be. Yeah, I'd add a few to that on recovery. I have a cold shower as well. Um, I want to come back to that and I want to come back to the red light. Uh, reading for me is really recovery based, foam rolling, stretching, hiking, I find really restorative. Absolutely one of my favorite things to do. Um, and I live in central or South London, um, but a 50 minute drive takes you out to the countryside in Kent. Uh, and you pretty much won't, you know, I, there's some walks I'll do where I won't see another person, which I absolutely love. Um, I want to pick up on the cold water exposure. I'm currently doing 
hot shower, last 30 seconds of cold, a little bit more if I can do it. Is that enough? Because I've heard that you need to get past, I think I read it in your book actually, you need to get past the non-shivering state. What is, what is the kind of the key to it with cold exposure? Because it would be criminal, wouldn't it, to be doing it and thinking you're getting the benefits only <laughs> to find that you're not because you're not doing it for long enough. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think goal and context is something that always matters. And the reason I bring that up is that, you know, we have to understand why we're doing a certain thing. And with cold exposure, there are physical, physical or physiological benefits, but there are also psychological benefits. Mm -hmm. And I think we can get the psychological benefits from as little as 30 seconds. But if we want the physiological benefits, then a little bit longer than 30 seconds is probably what is necessary. Um, now, just because you're not getting physiological doesn't mean that you're not getting psychological benefits. And by that, I mean, forcing yourself to do something that is uncomfortable, um, which I think is at least personally, that's my favorite part of cold exposure is doing something voluntarily that you know is uncomfortable, something that you wouldn't want to do. Um, and, and that is sort of getting that first victory of the day or, or whenever you do it, um, knowing that, you know, the more we inoculate ourselves to avert adversity and, and stress, um, the easier it becomes to deal with it, um, you know, throughout other areas of our lives. And that's what I mean when I'm talking about the psychological benefits of cold exposure. Yeah. Um, for the physiological benefits, I think we do need more than 30 seconds. Um, if you want to do contrast showers, uh, you could go back and forth and alternate. You can get some great um, physiological benefits, especially in terms of um, uh, the, the browning of white adipose tissue um, and in the metabolic benefits. We can get that with uh, the, the contrast showers. If we want the full, um, that vagal tone, uh, that parasympathetic release, we need to stay in the cold long enough to get past that fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. So the actual, the, the first exposure to cold will produce a sympathetic response, that fight or flight response. Um, it is it becomes a parasympathetic activity when we stay in long enough to fight that and get beyond that. Right. Uh, so, so I think longer than 30 seconds is probably required for that. Um, I'm not sure how much, uh, and then obviously the colder, the water, the less time you would have to spend in there. I mean, if you get into a frozen pond, um, you know, you probably need less time there than you would in a 50 degree tub you know that's controlled in some kind of you know fitness environment yeah um what are your thoughts on cryotherapy i was out in new york in september and i went into a cryotherapy chamber um i did about four minutes in there and they got it to i think it was minus 60 something like that but it's a different type of, of thrill if you like isn't it because it's a dry cold rather than a full you know, submersion but I listened to a podcast recently with Ben Greenfield, whom I'm sure you're familiar with um, and probably linked in with. And he was saying that actually full body submersion is more effective than cryotherapy. And obviously there's a massive difference in cost. What are your thoughts? I agree completely. I think, I think it's up to us to make cryotherapy or cold exposure work for us. I mean, some people have uh, the financial and time means to be able to go to a cryotherapy place and do that uh, regularly. Other people don't. Mm. Um, I, and if you don't, I don't think that's a big deal because I, I'm in agreement with what you and Ben say uh, that I think being in the water is a much better experience in terms of getting those physiological um, benefits from cold exposure. If there's a few reasons for that. One, it's just, it's science, it's conductivity of, of energy. If, if you get fully submerged in water, uh, there's more surface area, there's more ways for that water to pull and sort of absorb body heat uh, away from you. Uh -huh. If you go into a, one of those tubes that sprays, um, you know, basically liquid nitrogen on you, there's a few reasons I don't like that. Number one, uh, you're in a room where the ambient temperature is room temperature. Uh, I know you guys are Celsius, we're, we're Fahrenheit, but essentially 70, you know, 65, 70 degrees is room temperature. So 
you know, you're still standing in room temperature. Uh, number two, with those tubes, they're spraying a chemical on you. Um, I, I'm not a fan of being sprayed with a chemical. Yeah, not uh, and number three, that. yeah, and it's a chemical that can be used for for you know some some things that you know aren't exactly you know healthy. Mm. Um, number th number three, it's basically all sprayed down low, and then it works its way up high. Done some studies where you know they've they've taken thermal imaging and, and done the measurements, and you know they, if they measure it down where your ankles are it might be, you know, negative, whatever they say it is. But by the time that stuff works its way up to your body, you know, your core and your head, uh, it's not as cold there as it is down lower. Hmm. So you get this uneven cooling. It's better than nothing. And if you have the time to do it and the money to do it, great. I think it's the most expensive, but also the least effective way. Hmm. Um, if, if you have the means to go to a cryo place where it's actually a room, so if you get in a chamber, that would be a better step than the tube. Um, I've had the opportunity to do that at uh, US, uh, US Cryo in Walnut Creek in California. Um, there's a guy out there that runs that place named Tim. He's a really great guy. And that is just, it's like walking into a, a walk-in refrigerator. So if you work in food service, you've got the ability to do this every single day. Just go yeah. hang out, just go hang out in the walk-in freezer for five minutes. Yeah. Um, but and that's, that's essentially what it is. You walk in there and, um, you know, it's, it's actually a cold room and, and that room was like negative hundred and something degrees. Uh, you're not getting sprayed with chemicals and all of the air temperature around you is uh, much colder. And if you do that, you'll, so, so there's, I'm a big fan of, you know, personal experience, right. And, and paying attention to, you know, your own truths and did I feel colder or, or what was that experience like for me? And then when I did that room, your breath comes up, you have to wear a mask and your breath comes up. I had icicles form on my eyelashes and my eyebrows. And then the other people in the room with me, I, I could see this, the same thing forming on their hair and on their beard. You never get that in a tube. So sure. right away, you know, there's evidence that this is colder uh, than, you know, the tube. Uh, but then also, you know, I mentioned being in a pond. So if, if you've ever, you know, done cold exposure in a pond or, or in the ocean, mm. you know, your feet are connected to the earth. We know, you know, if you just go stand on cold sand or cold earth, you know how quickly that pulls body heat away. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons that when you're camping, they tell you not to sleep directly on the ground the earth will pull body heat from you. So if you're standing in a pond uh, or in an ocean or whatever, and you've got the ground pulling body heat away from you, you have the water pulling body heat away from you. And, you know, ideally if you can get submerged up to, you know, your jawline so that your thyroid uh, and everything is actually below the water. Um, I think water will pull more heat away from us than the air will. Um, mm. Somebody can probably look for a study on that or knows the answer to that with, in terms of conduct, but um, so I, I'm actually a fan of being in the water more than the, the cryo. It's also cheaper. It's a lot cheaper. I mean, I pay 50 bucks, I think in New York, um, but my partner also had it done to her face. So I think it's about 70 bucks for the two treatments. 50 mm. bucks is affordable, but four minutes, three minutes really is not long. Here in London, it's about 180 pounds for three minutes. So that's 60 quid a minute. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to be, and, and then you've got to get to the, the chamber as well. So, I mean, if you compare it to a cold bath, um, if you're bold and the water rates aside, that's free. Cold shower, you're in it anyway. As you say, it's about leveraging time. You're in that shower anyway. In fact, you make the point that probably you'll save time because you're not going to hang around in a cold shower. Um, <laughs> right. So, yeah, but, uh, that, that, that's cool. And that, that sort of chimes with my thoughts as well. The red light therapy. Um, are you talking about a juve light or? Yes, yeah. it is a juve light. Yep. Okay, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Just, um, I haven't got one. I'm toying with the idea of getting one. What, what do you get from it? What is the whole idea behind the juve? So it's funny. I, I've had a conversation with Scott Nelson, one of the co-founders at Juve recently. And you know, he was asking, you know, that he asked me that very same question. And I said, you know, I think the easiest way to, explain it or, it or to kind of put it into words is I just feel like my batteries are being charged. It's a non-stimulant 
uh, you know, it's not like drinking coffee, it's not caffeine, um, you know, but you just feel like you get your batteries charged. And, and what's funny is, I mean, that's essentially exactly what it's doing. Um, you know, that's what the light does for our mitochondria. Um, one of the other things that I've noticed is my hair grows a lot faster. Um, yeah, when I first started using it, like I had to shave like one day sooner than I did, you know, prior to using the red light. Yeah. Uh, you know, so instead of like every three days, it was every two days, um, which is kind of a pain in the butt, but I can deal with that. Um, and, and what's really funny is um, when we first got our unit, I was using it. My wife was not. My wife is actually a physician. So, you know, she's very skeptical of, you know, things. Um, you know, she has that doctor's, you know, that scientific approach to everything. Um, we went on a road trip and it was, uh, we traveled by car, not by plane. So I actually took the, the red light with us. I wanted to have it. You know, I didn't want to not use it for that week. I'd gotten used to it. Um, cause I think on a previous trip where I flew, I didn't have it. And I just noticed a difference not being able to do it in the morning. Mm. So I convinced her to start using it that week. And Within three days, she was hooked. She noticed the exact same thing, said the exact same thing. It just feels like you're charging your batteries. And, you know, now she uses it every single day. Um, so for somebody who, you know, didn't really hear all of the hype about red light um, and then just started using this thing and actually felt a difference, uh, I thought that was really cool. And, you know, in sharing that with Scott and the guys at Juve, they thought it was really awesome to hear that too. Yeah. And it, red light is that frequency of light, although it is actually red, isn't it? Yes. Um, so it is, you know, it, red light is, is a certain frequency within that visible spectrum. There are, the unit that I have is, some is near infrared and then the other is infrared. Um, one of those frequencies is actually in the visible spectrum. And then one of them is outside of the visible spectrum. Um, and because it is outside of the visible spectrum, it looks like the lights are not on, but they are, you just can't see it. Right. So you're using that for energy is, does it have any relation to circadian rhythm or is that natural light or something like the human charger, for example? Yeah, it does have a relationship to um, the circadian rhythm. And that's one of the reasons I think I said I use it first thing in the morning. Um, we are in a, in a natural setting. We are exposed to red light early in the day and late in the day. Typically, it's around sunrise and sunset and then white light around midday. Um, so I try to get my red light exposure within the first hour of the day or within an hour of sunset. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that I can, I don't know that it's, I don't know that doing that is necessarily helping. I know that it's not hurting. Yeah. So I don't want to, uh, my thought process there is that I don't want to dose myself with red light at noon or midday when mm -hmm. from a normal or natural standpoint, I would be most exposed to white light. Um, or blue light at that time of the day. Mm. So, you know, I would recommend trying to keep your red light to sunrise or sunset if possible. Yeah. Okay. So before we move on to the gut, which I'm really keen to talk to you about as well, how does somebody take all that into to, to feelings, into how they change their feelings and control their feelings a little bit more, perhaps channel them? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, for, for red light, it's if you're, if you feel like you're charging your batteries, um, I, I don't know that there are any studies that show red light, um, increases HRV. Mm. Um, but, but for any of these other tools or, or parasympathetic activities, you know, maybe the way I'm doing it where I'm doing breath work or meditation, you know, I might be elevating my HRV, but it's because of the yoga or the meditation, um, or the gratitude journaling, not necessarily the red light, but, but even anything that's helping you feel like your batteries are charged yeah. is going to lead to greater emotional resiliency. So, um, yeah. you know, that's, that's just it is, is looking at these things as, you know, how do I increase my bandwidth? Um, how, how do I keep that high so that, you know, I can, act in a way or make choices that are aligned with my values uh, as opposed to, you know, just being tired and, you know, not being able to fight that limbic system response mm -hmm. to certain situations where, 
you know, I just want to sit on the couch and turn on the TV and be a vegetable and just tune everything out and, yeah. uh, or, you know, eat the pizza or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, HRV is one of the things that I track every morning. So I use the Euro ring, which you do talk about in the book. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, HRV is one I track so that I can understand how recovered I am from, from the recent activities based on how well I've slept and how much I've moved or not moved. That's a really important one for me. And I just set a little personal goal of keeping it at 120 or above, um, which is just the number that it kind of averages out for me. Um, if it drops below, um, and it's 99 this morning, but I did an intense weekend of training for various things I've got coming up, I would expect it to be low. So that's cool. But for the next 24 hours, all I'm focused on is how I can increase that HRV number tomorrow. So instead of having a goal around sleep and a goal around meditation and a goal around food and all that stuff, I've just got one simple goal. HRV needs to be 120 or up, but I know it won't always be. And indeed, it shouldn't always be. Um, right. And meditation is a big part of that for me. And in terms of um, influencing HRV, but more, well, in connection with that, just generally influencing how I respond to things and how effective I am and how happy I am. Meditation has been a really key one for me. Um, I do, I'm up to 20 minutes a day now. I'm using the Headspace app, but I mean, it's money for our road because Andy's saying hi to me and bye to me <laughs> and the other 20 minutes of silence. Um, but that's been really great. And I think it's profoundly impacted how I respond to things. I run a small business. So we go from big VAT bill to winning a new client to corporation tax bills and a TEDx talk. And it's an up and down that we'll all identify with. Everyone has that in life. But I feel that my resilience and my ability to manage my emotions better um, and just you know, keep my head above the parapet in terms of stress has been profoundly impacted by meditation. And I'm sure other things that I'm working on as well. Um, I, I love the way that you identified the one variable in your health and wellness journey that impacts everything else for you. It's like, that's your KPI. And it's just, you know, if you focus on that thing, yeah. that everything else will kind of fall into place. And, you know, yeah. that's, I, I think that that is very much the way I like to approach things as well. So um, I, I love hearing that and, and knowing that, that that's probably how you're talking to all of your listeners as well. So that's yeah. really. Yeah, thank you. Um, let's move on and talk about the gut, which is one of my favorite topics, but I don't come from a scientific background. I don't know. I know a bit about it, but uh, one of our modules in our Six Signals um, coaching course is digestion. And it's interesting you say in the book that it's brackets first brain question mark, because I've had a few people suggest that it is. I personally believe that it is because I think the bacteria in our guts send messages up to the brain about how we're feeling. They can affect mental health, physical health. Mm -hmm. uh, even autism can be impacted by gut bacteria. But what is the significance of that, um, in your opinion, in terms of health and performance? Yeah, you know, I've been in a space for the last few years uh, with my professional life where, you know, we've heard a lot about neurotransmitters and, you know, the gut being our second brain. And in doing much of the research for this book, you know, especially in that section, there are a lot of gut researchers who would argue that that was actually our first brain. And it's, 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 it's a compelling argument and you know i'm i'm not here to weigh in one way or the other but if we were going to say that it was the first brain it would make sense because it is part of the enteric ner nervous system which you know as we develop develops prior to you know the central nervous system which is the brain uh, the the cns comes from the development of the enteric nerve nervous system so you could argue that that is our first brain. Um, you know, I think one of the, the scientists, I forget exactly uh, who, but you know, this is in the book as well, talked about how when we develop the ability to cook food, um, that it enabled us to pull significantly more energy and nutrients from that food, which then afforded us the ability as we evolved to spend less time worrying about Food and spend more time on higher cognitive function, um, you know, that then turned into things like building cities and civilizations and technology and, you know, all of the advancements that humans have done that no other animal on this planet has done. So, um, you know, 
I don't know of any other animals that cook their food. Um, so that may be an argument for cooking your food, um, more so than, uh, than it is, you know, actually talking about gut being a first or second brain, but, um, it, whether it's the first or the second, the, the interplay and the relationship between the two, um, I, I don't think there's anybody questioning that anymore. Um, one of the things that that I will caution people uh, with is that when we start talking about the microbiome, you know, that's a word that only showed up in scientific literature about 20 years ago. There's no other part of the human anatomy that we have understood fully uh, or accurately within 20 years of study. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are we are really in the infancy of understanding the microbiome and how the gut and the brain um, interact and, and what that relationship is. So it will be very fascinating uh, over the next few years to see um, you know, where that research leads. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, <coughs> excuse me. One of the, anyone who's a familiar listener to, to any of my content will be raising their eyes now, but the one thing that's really transformed my health, my digestive health in the last 10, 12 weeks has been drinking goat milk kefir. So it's been, uh, I had, I was belching after certain foods. I've had my DNA tested and I knew I was highly sensitive to carbohydrates. So often those foods was exasperate it, but, and it's something I've had for a long time that it became normal and people around me, obviously not everyone, but would say, no, that's not normal. You really need to sort it out. And drinking this gut milk kefir for about 10 weeks has just eliminated all that, that um, bit of bloating um that's gone but the belching's gone completely and it just opened my eyes to how we can affect our health by addressing what's going on in the gut um you know i'd also i think you you in the book i'd read that we're actually more microbial than we are human but i think in the book you put paid to that myth to say actually it's about equal so for clarity we contain as many human cells as we do microbial cells so bacteria basically which is astonishing isn't it so we yeah, and, and paying attention, I guess in the first part of this, we talked about how we look after our human cells by, you know, addressing vagal tone and HRV. Um, and the other part of that, if we, want to, if we don't want to ignore the other half of the body, is paying attention to how we feed and nurture the bacteria inside us. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've had similar experiences to the one that you just mentioned where, you know, I took a food intolerance test and you know, found out that I have an intolerance to egg yolks, chicken, and oats. Mm. And within a week of removing those, you know, my joint pain disappeared. uh, My energy levels went back up. Uh, And when I say energy levels went back up, I used to feel, before I took this test, I would feel like it was a Saturday morning and I just played a game of football, you know, in high school on Friday night. Like, Mm you know, that would be, you know, yeah. sort of the Saturday morning feeling. And, um, I was feeling like that all the time and, and I just couldn't figure out why I knew it wasn't right. So, you know, to your point, you know, when you, when you realize that, uh, that certain things aren't normal, uh, you know, look into them, do testing, you know, remove the guessing and, uh, you know, figure out what's going on and, and then make those changes uh, so that, yes, you can take care of, you know, whether it be the, the micro, um, microorganisms or you know our human cells yeah definitely um and it's something i would urge listeners to to address is the is digestive health is looking at your bacteria whether you're drinking a goat milk kefir which is a quiet taste i love it because i like the yogurty texture even though it's quite tarty i don't know if you've had it um and i don't have yogurt typically because it's cow's milk and i'm, I'm intolerant to that um but it is an acquired taste but you can also have fermented foods can't you kimchi yeah. Uh, sauerkraut that kind of thing um where is the science at the moment do you know in terms of the influence of bacteria on mental health for example because i know there's links with depression mm-hmm. do you know any more than that yeah so I, i've had a few conversations with some i guess you would, you would call them researchers and, and leaders in the field of you know, gut health um christine roche is one and you know when i talk to her Sorry, what was, what was Christine's surname? Roche. Uh, I can send you an email and, and connect you guys. I think she'd be a great guest on the podcast for you. You guys could get into this a little bit deeper. but That would be fantastic, yeah. Um, she was explaining to me that there are certain strains of bacteria that have been linked to 
um, not not the cause of these diseases, but the actual actually uh, prevention of either Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in terms of long-term cognitive health um, and neurobiological function, uh, the the bifidobacterium family was one that was very beneficial um, for protecting brain health in the long run. Um, and, you know, when we look at, um, whether you look at probiotics or yogurts or fermented foods, um, we definitely want to make sure that our gut is populated with these bifidobacteriums. Um, and, uh, and I, I think I'll leave it there. I'm definitely not the expert on that, but, um, you know, if you want to pursue that, I can put you in touch with her and she can talk a little bit more about all of those. Yeah, that would be amazing. It'd be great to get on the show. And I'll also, uh, once I've got her name, I will link to her in the show notes if anyone wants to do their own, their own exploration. Okay, um, I'm mindful of time. So I just want to move into discomfort zone. A great favorite philosophy of mine is that we need to be in our discomfort zones regularly in order to build that emotional resiliency, um, to be comfortable being uncomfortable and all this kind of thing. What does that look like for you? I mean, how often do you get into your discomfort zone? What is it? A daily cold showers, unless you're very new to them, is probably one. Yeah, and you know what? I think no matter how many times we take a cold shower, or even if it becomes a daily habit, the last thing I want to do when I wake up in the morning is get in the cold water. Um, you know, so so I think I don't think we. I, I think we. I don't think we ever. You know, wake up and say like, you know, I want to do this. I crave this now. I'm, I'm much better about getting in there than I was when I first started. Um, so I think I can continue to list that as a way that I expand my comfort zone because it's, it's never desirable or comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing about that practice is it gets harder and harder to find things that are outside of your comfort zone because by definition, when you are expanding your comfort zone, you know, I'm five years, 10 years into that practice, the things that were outside of my comfort zone in the beginning are now well within my comfort zone. So you have to continue to stretch yourself and uh, we have to continue to look for areas where we can grow and things that we want to, you know, add, whether they are experiences or skills or assets, uh, however you think about it. So uh, it is an interesting thing. Um, and, and, you know, you mentioned, you know, your affinity for it. And, and, and I think that the more we, you know, if, if something is in your comfort zone, then it, it is by definition something that you have the ability to do. So I, I think, you know, if someone is looking for ways to expand their comfort zone, it's just, it's simply thinking about things that you want to, to do to acquire that you haven't yet done. Um, you know, for me, Right now, I'm focused on becoming a better presenter and, and public speaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I will actually, it's not that speaking itself or being on stage is outside of my comfort zone, but there are certain elements of that that I want to improve. So I am working on being a different, I guess would be a way to, to say it, a different speaker Mm-hmm. Um, to you know, have more awareness over certain parts of delivering a, a talk or a speech. Um, you know, I'm sure you're well aware that, you know, some people are better speakers than others and there's a reason. So it's practicing those things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm working on some things in the, in the business side as well, um, that I'm maybe not necessarily comfortable with or, or haven't yet mastered. Um, yeah. So hopefully yeah. that's, those are good places to start for now. Yeah. It's interesting. Actually, I thought you might say something more to do with physical challenge, which is how I originally thought about discomfort zone. Um, and I, I, I try and push out, you know, I, I've just discovered cycle. It's soul cycle mm-hmm. for you guys in the U S we've got cycle here. Um, absolutely love it. And you can take yourself into your discomfort zone in that class several times. You just turn that dial, give it another turn, give it another turn. Um, mm-hmm. We're taking part in a big event next year called the Arctic Circle Race, which is 160 kilometers on cross-country skis over three days. You're self-sufficient. I mean, you don't have to carry your kit. It'll get moved from base to base. But a lot of unknowns for me in that. I've not been on cross-country skis before. 
I've not been in minus 30 before. I haven't eaten food that's been freeze dried before. I haven't waxed my own skis before. It's full of firsts. So that's going to be a big discomfort zone. But great. Yeah, um, that is awesome. That, yeah, yeah, it's going to be very cool. We're trying to raise £10,000 for the charity Alzheimer's Research. Um, so that's what that one's all about. Um, we're running the marathon next month as well as a kind of twin challenge. Um, but actually, discomfort zone for me as well has become a bit more about learning more about yourself and how you respond to things and, and questioning some of your behaviors and looking for more honesty as well. I wouldn't yeah. call myself a dishonest person at all, but I think we do tell ourselves a lot of little white lies all the time about, mm -hmm. and just trying to, you know, um, just learn, learn more, a lot about feelings actually mm -hmm. and exploring those and getting uncomfortable. Maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm very averse to being vulnerable or appearing vulnerable, but mm -hmm. sometimes that's important. And in, particularly in the area of speaking, and as, you, as your profile becomes more public, people want to see a bit of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. you know, I've mm -hmm. noticed that I've watched people intently when they're on stage and look at their profiles, and I find that the people who show more vulnerability um, do, do tend to get a better response. So that kind of discomfort zone is an area that I'm exploring as well, but it's just a very powerful place to be. I did a boxing match a few years ago as well. That's uncomfortable, especially learning to spar. Showtime, showtime's all right. It's the first time of putting on a head guard and a gum shield and getting battered. You know, <laughs> blood coming out of my nose. I've got tinnitus in one ear. And this is actually after the fight when I was just doing some sparring for kicks. Tinnitus in one ear. Um, what do you call it? Uh, perforated eardrop in the other. I mean, it's a learning to spar. Have you done contact sport? No. No. Okay. No. Pretty hideous. Um, that would definitely be outside my comfort zone. So maybe I'll add that. But yeah, I think it's, it's interesting that I think it's, I think a lot of people's first response or first thoughts when we talk about getting outside of comfort zone is usually in the, the physical stuff, the, the fitness or the physical pursuit. So I, that's why I tried to give examples that were, uh, you know, outside of that. And, uh, and, yeah. and it sounds like you're doing the same thing. And I think to me, that's, you know, I look at health and wellness or, or the, the physical side. It, 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 those are just singular pillars of you know being a well-rounded total human so um you know trying to just throw some examples out there from other areas yeah. of you know growing and evolving as humans yeah no that's cool um i think the whole thing with feelings is we're completely governed that's the whole point of your book is that we're, we're governed by them and what we haven't got into but would be interesting at some other times to explore the negative self-talk that people have and how their feelings can dictate that monkey mind chatting away at them uh, limiting beliefs and all that kind of stuff but mm -hmm. I've really enjoyed this this conversation Ryan so thank you very much for your time um, the book is fuck your feelings it's out now it's on Amazon I'll put links to it in the show notes along with everything else we've talked about your social media links your website um, you've got a podcast a new podcast you just want to talk about that for a couple of minutes sure so the name of the show is the better human project and you know as you were talking about uh, what you're doing, uh, I think you might be a, a really great guest because be you, cool. know, you, you have this charitable component to what you're doing. Um, what we are doing with Better Human Project is continuing to uh, share actionable advice for our listeners to be able to be better as humans. And that is, you know, as I just alluded to, it's, it's in every pillar of being a better human, not just health and wellness. It can be business or relationships or uh, whatever it might be. There's no guest or no topic that is off limits. Uh, but we're also taking it a step further and saying, well, what do we do with all of this self-improvement uh, and self-mastery? How are we using that to uh, make a positive impact on the lives of people around us, whether it's you know our local community or uh, some greater mission or uh, charitable components, researchers. So we really want to be able to uh, get involved with the people that we're talking to that are doing cool things, uh, whether that's somebody who's researching ketosis for cancer treatments or uh, somebody who is, um, you know, running a, uh, like you said, this this cross country skiing thing to uh, to raise money. And awareness for Alzheimer's and donate. So we, we wanted a show that was beyond just, oh, this is cool. Let's share your story. But no, this is cool. Let's share your story. And then how do we get involved? How do our listeners get involved? Yeah. Uh, you know, so everything we're doing on the show uh, is done 
with the intent to share that, to help our audience get better, but also to provide a bridge for getting involved and making an impact. So we'll be in, we'll, we will be donating a significant portion of our revenue to these charities and the researchers that we're talking to and highlighting on the show. Originally, it was going to be 50% of what we brought in through a website called Patreon. We've moved off of that platform uh, for a few reasons. The biggest reason being that most people aren't familiar with that platform. So we had to spend too much time explaining what that was uh, mm. as opposed to talking about our own uh, mission yeah. and project. Um, but we are in some talks right now with uh, a few potential long-term partners. And depending on how those go, uh, we will incorporate the business uh, one of two different ways. And then how that goes will dictate um, you know, what our donation model uh, and contribution models look like. So hopefully within a few months, uh, I'll be able to uh, announce that with more certainty and clarity instead of the, the vagueness <laughs> right now. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. But well, I've the just idea... a few episodes of the show and it's good. So I will link to that. I recommend that, that listeners, you're not, that's the only show you're running now, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me on, Leanne. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, help us to reach more people by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. We would really appreciate that, and it would help us to spread the good word even further. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next show.